Isn't it exciting to see what God's doing? Isn't it exciting to know that the gospel is going forth? You know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is doing that. He's been doing that. He will continue to do that until he comes back to receive his church in the air when we will go up to meet with him and we shall be forever with the Lord. And it's just exciting for us as a church to have a type of ministry that through your giving, through your going, has been able to reach out to the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel going forward. And that's what we're going to be committed to until Jesus comes back. This morning, take your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of you know this is the great resurrection chapter in the Word of God. We are continuing our journey through 1 Corinthians. And last week we finished up with chapter 14. And as we move into chapter 15, there's kind of a change in Paul as he's writing to the believers there in Corinth. When the book opened, the Apostle Paul was addressing with the people in Corinth things that he had heard about were going on in the church. Now, you'll remember the big issue there was their disunity, how that everybody was lining up behind different personalities. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Uh, and Paul addresses that issue with them. And then he transitions to what most of the book covers is problems that existed in the church that they had written him questions about. Remember we said we're dealing with questions they had sent and what we have are Paul's answers. We didn't have the questions themselves, but some of the questions were pretty easy to figure out, weren't they? Based on what Paul was writing to them. As we move into chapter 15, it seems that that section on answering questions is now over. And Paul is going to deal in chapter 15 with a major doctrinal issue that he has heard is coming from some of the people in Corinth. Believe it or not, there were some in Corinth who were questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know who they are, but according to what Paul says in verse 12, there were some in the church who were questioning, did Jesus really come forth from the dead? And this is such a central issue in Christianity, we're going to be talking about this this morning, that Paul is going to deal with this whole issue of the resurrection, and in particularly, the issue of the gospel. What is the gospel? What makes up the gospel? What's the priority of the gospel? And so as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want us first of all to see the gospel's priority. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So let's look at the priority here. We all have priorities in our life, right? Every single one of us has priorities. Uh, bring up on the screen the picture of uh, an individual. I think you all, if you're a football fan at all, you recognize the individual Jimmy Johnson, uh, the former coach of Miami and then the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, a, and currently he's on one of the major TV programs as an analyst every week. The priority of Jimmy Johnson's life was football. When he was coaching, he said it drove him night and day like some mad scientist on a single-minded quest. His quest was to win football games, and anyone that interfered with that would pay the price. When he was coaching at the University of Miami, he was married to his high school sweetheart. They had been married for 27 years when he took the job to coach the Dallas Cowboys. And as he took that job, he divorced his wife. He said while he was in college, he needed his wife to go to public functions for the football team. And he needed his wife to convince the parents of the recruits that Jimmy would really be interested in their families and in their kids. But once he went into the, the professional realm of coaching, she was no longer needed, so, she, so he divorced her. And he said, football is number one in my life. My boys are number two. Well, his boys had always been a distant number two anyway because he admitted in their entire life, never once did he buy them a birthday present, never once did he buy them a present for Christmas. He just said, I didn't have time for any of that because I was coaching football. So what was his priority? Pretty clear. Football. We all have priorities in our life. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had a priority when he came to earth. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it reads, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came on a mission to this earth. And his mission was to seek us and to seek others that were lost. Now the Apostle Paul in following after this priority, makes it clear. He's going to say in verse 3 that we'll look at in a moment that the gospel he declared was of the first importance. You know, there are, the Bible teaches things other than the gospel, but nothing is more important in the gospel than the priority of people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this was Jesus' priority. It was a priority for Paul, and it needs to be a priority for us. Paul tells us in these first two verses 
that the gospel is what he preached. It is the gospel that people received. It is the gospel by which believers stand, and it is the gospel by which we are saved, unless what? Unless we have believed in vain. Now, what does that mean, to believe in vain? So Paul is saying, it is possible for someone to say, I believe the gospel, yet not be saved, because they've believed it in vain. To shed a little light on this, James, in his short epistle, tells us that even the devils do what? They believe and they tremble. And yet the the demons are not saved. So what does it mean to believe in vain? You see, believing in the gospel is more than just intellectually saying, I know these facts are true. And we'll talk about those specific facts in just a moment. It's more than just giving intellectual assent to. Believing in Christ for salvation is always an issue of the will, of the commitment of ourselves to Christ. And to believe in vain means that you've assented to something. Yeah, you would say Jesus came, Jesus died. You'll assent to that, but you've never repented of your sins. You've never turned to Christ to be your Savior. You've just tried to get a fire insurance policy. You understand what I'm talking about there when I say a fire insurance policy? We have lots of people who don't want to go to hell. Can, can, can we say there's probably no one that really wants to go to hell? But there are some that what they want to know is what's the least amount that I have to do in order to keep me from going to the place of God's judgment. They're not in serving Christ. They're not interested in having Christ, as they would say, mess up their lives in the way they want to live. They're just looking, how can I escape the flames? Now, escaping the flames is good motivation. Can I say that? That is good. And some people are saved out of fear. The book of Jude tells us that some people are saved through trembling. But just wanting something to keep you from there without committing yourself to Christ, without a work of grace happening in your life, is believing in vain. I can remember some years ago, my son Brian was serving as an intern here at Maranatha. And one of his assignments was he was teaching a Bible study in the inner city. And he had a group of people in this particular group that we were trying to reach. And as part of the the study, they were talking about that once you've come to faith in Christ, we are to serve Christ and that Christ is going to reward those who serve him. 
And the people in the study said, oh, we don't want to hear about any rewards. I said, what do you mean you don't want to hear? We don't care about any rewards. All we want to do is get through the golden gate. Tell us what's the least we can do to get through the golden gates. And that's all we're interested in. That's a belief in vain. And Paul says, there are some of you who have believed in vain. We are saved by believing in the gospel. Unless we have believed in vain. So Paul is going to proclaim and make clear what the gospel is. We see that in verses 3 to 4. Paul says to you, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, this is of importance. I'm sharing with you that which I've received, Paul says. That Christ died for our sins in according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So let's look at the gospel proclaimed. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. Some say that is the gospel in the nutshell. This is the most basic definition that we can give of the gospel. Some years ago, I was in a Bible study. Uh, someone from outside our church, it was an outside group, teaching a study here. And I was a part of that, that study with a number of people from our church. And one of the sessions was on the gospel and the kingdom. And so the, the, the guy who was teaching the study said, tell me, what is the gospel? And as a pastor, I'm going to admit, I was very proud when almost in unison, Almost everybody from Maranatha Bible Church spoke up because there were people here from other churches as well. But almost everyone from Maranatha Bible Church spoke up almost in unison. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And I sat there and said, yes, (laughs) yes, you've nailed it. And then I heard the speaker say, well, no, that's not it. There has to be more, he said. Now, let's pause for a moment, because I want to say to you, the speaker was right and wrong at exactly the same time. He was wrong in that what was said was correct. That is the gospel. Paul makes it very clear. If he has an argument, he's got an argument with Paul, not with the people from Maranatha. But he was right in this way. The word gospel means good news. The word gospel by itself means good news. So whenever we see the word gospel in the scriptures, we need to ask the question, good news about what? See, when Jesus was here on earth, he would give good news about the kingdom. So that was good news about the kingdom that he was going to set up. 
The Apostle Paul is writing about the gospel by which we are saved. The gospel of grace. And this is it. There are other things that are important issues, but they do not raise themselves to the level of the gospel. Because it is the gospel and the gospel alone that Paul enunciates here that we believe in order to be saved. Now look at what's tied up in this. Christ. Who is Christ? The word Christ means anointed one. So it begins with recognizing who Jesus really is. Christ died for our sins. It involves admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That he died for our sins. He died for my sins. That he was buried. Now some people ask, they're, they're confused. Why does Paul put an emphasis here on being buried? Because Paul is combating an argument of those days that Jesus was not really dead. That he just pretended to be dead. So when Paul is talking about Jesus being buried for three days, that is very important. Because in the Jewish mindset, in their tradition, they felt the soul and the spirit remained with the dead body for up to three days. So that if Jesus had been resurrected in less than three days, some would argue he wasn't really dead because the soul and spirit hang around the body for three days. But by him being dead for three days, he's making it clear that he was buried for three days, that he was actually dead and then came back to life. In addition to uh, dealing with that false belief by the Jews, it's also in accordance to the scriptures, prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus would be buried for three days. And Jesus himself had predicted he would be buried for three days. That's why the burial of Christ is an important element of the gospel. That he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. This is the one true gospel. And people will move away from the gospel. Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, will write to the church at Corinth, he'll say this, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's saying it's possible for us to be led astray. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you 
in all things. Paul is making it clear. I, when I spoke with you, made it clear to you what the gospel is. When I wrote the the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians to you, I made it clear to you what the gospel is. And if Paul doesn't say it's strong enough in 2 Corinthians, he certainly does in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 6 to 9, where there were some there questioning the gospel that Paul preached. And notice what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. See, Paul's saying there's one and only one true gospel being preached here. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now that's very strong language by Paul. Those words, let him be accursed, literally mean let him drop straight into hell. So Paul's saying, someone comes to you and preaches to you a gospel other than the one I have proclaimed to you. Paul says, I don't even care if it's an angel from heaven. I don't care if it was another one of my coworkers. I don't care who the individual is irregardless of what credentials they may bring to you. If they are going to preach to you a gospel different than the one I proclaim to you, may hell open up and may they drop straight into it. Uh, do you think Paul's made that pretty clear? Pretty clear about the gospel. Now Paul is dealing with now 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The proof of the gospel. It's actually the proof of the resurrection. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5. Paul says, and that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is going to argue for the proof of the gospel. And the proof of the gospel is this. First of all, the scriptures. Remember as he stated the gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day? He adds there, according to the Scriptures. See, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, it all happened the way the Scriptures had predicted that it would happen. It all happens in agreement with the teaching from the Old Testament. So that the gospel 
is proven to be true because it was predicted with 100% accuracy it came to pass. Also, Paul is arguing, the gospel's proof is in the resurrection. See, minus the resurrection, Paul is going to argue later on in this chapter that if the resurrection is not true, that we of all people are most miserable for having believed in this. But there are so many witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, Paul argues. Actually, in the scriptures, in addition to the appearance to Paul, because Paul says, last of all, Christ appeared to him. Remember on the Damascus road, Jesus appeared to him. I am Jesus, who you persecute. Aside from the appearance to Paul, there were 10 post-resurrection appearances by Christ that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. And I believe there were more than the 10. Only 10 are recorded for us. Remember, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It just tells us what God wants us to know. Remember the ending of the, the book of John where John writes that if he, if he wrote down everything that Jesus did, he supposed that all the books and all the libraries in the world wouldn't be able to con contain everything that Jesus did. So I would contend with you, there are probably more than the 10 appearances that are recorded, 11 counting the appearance to Paul. There are probably more than that, but there are the 10 plus Paul, 11, that are given to us in the Bible. Uh, he appears to, to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the other women. He appears to the two men walking on the Emmaus Road. He appears to Simon Peter. He appears to the 10 apostles with uh, Thomas not present. And then he appears to the 11 when Thomas is present. He appears to seven by the sea. He appears to over 500 at one time in Galilee. And then he appears to apostles in Jerusalem. And then Paul, and the only place we're told this in the New Testament, Paul says he also appeared to James, who would be his half-brother James. Remember, James originally was not a believer in Jesus, nor were his other brothers. They only believed in him after the resurrection. And when Paul appeals to the 500, Paul is writing somewhere around the year 50 A.D., so it's like 20 years after the resurrection. And Paul says of the 500, he says, many of them are still alive today, you can go and talk to them. And they can tell you that Jesus appeared to him. May I say to you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most attested to events of history. And that anyone who denies it does so out of ignorance. Think about coming into a court of law and all these witnesses being paraded before you. Yes, I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus. Well, you guys were all just hallucinating. 500. We all saw him at the same time. 
mass hallucinations, people who gave up their lives and died and would not change their testimony that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. There is the gospel's proof. But Paul is now going to talk about the gospel's power. That's what he says beginning in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Don't forget who it is that's writing this. Paul was the number one enemy of the church. He was on a mission to destroy the church when Jesus appeared to him. And his life was changed. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, friends, if you ever start thinking yourself being a little bit more important than you really are, just remember where you came from. Just remember the grace of God. Paul says, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But God's grace. Aren't you thankful? You know, I, now don't take this the wrong way when I say this. Aren't you thankful for the buts in the Bible? This is one. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul's saying, I didn't believe in vainness. I didn't believe in emptiness. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul's talking about the effect that grace had on him. Not that he's saved by what he did, but he's talking about how grace affected him. He says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Power of the gospel, it's all about grace. It was all about grace for Paul. It's all about grace for me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's all about grace. You know, this concept of grace, Christianity actually affected the meaning of the word. Up until Christ, the word grace, this Greek word that was used for grace, it means gift. You know, we talked about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the gifts that we have, spiritual gifts that we have, are grace gifts that are given to us. The original meaning of grace was this, that someone would do something for a friend, someone they really liked, someone they were in a close relationship with, that they would do something for their friend, not expecting anything in return. That was the original definition of grace. 
I would do someone, something for a friend of mine that I wouldn't let them pay me back for, that I would just say, I am doing this for you. That was the original meaning of grace. Here is how Christianity changed all of that. What does the book of Romans tell us? Christ died for us while we were what? While we were yet sinners. This is a concept that nobody had. That you would do something for someone who was not only not, only not your friend, but was your enemy. And you would do something great for them, expecting nothing in return, and allowing them not to pay you back anything. That's what Jesus did. That's the grace. This is, this is what overwhelmed Paul and his salvation and all through his life. Christ died for me when I was his enemy. When I was persecuting his church. And remember what Jesus said to him on the Damascus road? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, because when you persecute God's people, you're persecuting Christ. And Paul says, here's the beautiful power of grace. It totally transforms and it totally changes. And how could Paul know that? Because Paul said, it changed me. So let me ask you a question this morning. Has the gospel changed you? Amen. Have you believed? Have you recognized the truth of the gospel that Christ died on the cross for you and for your sins, and that only through him can you be saved. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and he offers to you his grace for you to receive. Have you believed? For as many has received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you received this gift of grace? Secondly, if you say, oh, yes, Butch, I believed. Have you believed in vain? Have you believed in vain? Is it just something in your mind to say, hey, I just want to get into heaven, and that's, that's all I want? And if someone were to ask you, tell us about your relationship with Jesus. You don't have much to say because you don't have a relationship with him because all you've wanted is an insurance policy. My friend, that alone will not save you. It's the admission that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you're humbling yourself to Him. And you're surrendering your will to Him. Have you believed? Okay, that's a good first step. But even, remember, the demons believe. And they tremble. Is your belief a true surrender of your will to Him? And friends... Question number three from this passage is, if you believed, and if you have not believed in vain, are you standing upon that belief? 
And are you not ashamed of that belief? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us. We praise you and we thank you, O Lord. Thank you for loving us, God, when we were unlovable. Thank you for giving us grace when we were your enemies. And help us, Father, that we will believe and we will stand upon the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.